If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Prince George of Denmark! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England, from Elswith to Prince Philip. Follow us on Twitter, or X, and Instagram, where we are, at RexFactorPod. Email RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com, and sign up for bonus content at Patreon.com forward slash RexFactor. And this week, we are reviewing Prince George of Denmark, consort to Queen Anne, the last of the Stuart consorts, and in some ways, the first unequivocally male consort. Well, what? Because obviously Philip II was unequivocally male, but he was also a sort of king. He was trying to exercise power as a king. We'll find out how George was different. Yeah, I mean, I've never heard of him. Mm, And I've done Rex Factor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can learn all about him today. Biography! Prince George of Denmark was born on the 2nd of April 1653 at Copenhagen Castle in Denmark, second son of King Frederick III of Denmark and Norway and Sophie Amelie of Brunswick-Lundberg. He's born in Norway? No, he's born in Denmark, but his father is King of Denmark and Norway. Oh, yeah, so his name is George of Denmark, isn't it? Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. That, well, it's all adding up, isn't it? Shall we go with Denmark or Norway? Well, I mean, he was born <laughs> in Denmark, so it seems... Yeah. Do you know what it is? I think it's your T-shirt. Red. Well, red with Some a white, white line across the front. Yeah. And a, yeah. I mean, Denmark also, obviously, red and white. Uh, Is that the one I'm thinking of? And just possibly yes. <laughs> yeah, Norway's got a red red cross on a white cross on a blue background, which is mm. not not what you're wearing there. No. So, I think basically you're confusing Denmark and Norway, and it's very confusing now the fact that the two countries are ruled by the same man. George was reportedly an able student, though he later told uh, Sophia of Hanover that one harsh tutor had dented his confidence so much that he had been brought up in so much fear that he could not rid himself of his shyness. Oh, that's horrible. Poor bloke. After some military training in 1668, he embarked on a grand tour of Europe, so he spent eight months at the French and English courts and then off to Italy in 1670. That sounds like his nightmare. It was when he was in Italy that his father died, so his brother, his older brother, became King Christian V of Denmark and soon secured an heir, meaning that George wasn't going to be destined for the Danish throne. Mm. Still, his uh, formidable mother tried to secure a different throne for him in 1674, that of Poland, which might seem a bit of a detour from uh, the path for a Danish prince, but the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth had become an elective monarchy in 1572. And indeed, the son of Catherine de' Medici, the future Henry III of France, was the first elected king. Wow. What an interesting idea. George did gain quite a bit of support uh, for his application to be king. Past experience. Including the backing of Louis XIV of France as well, so he got a good reference. Yeah, yeah. yeah that is a good reference, isn't it? Unfortunately, also on his uh, reference was the fact that he was a staunch Lutheran 
and Poland was uh, decidedly Catholic, which was a little bit of a clash. That's You'd get filtered out on the website with that level of difference. Indeed. So they instead elected John III Sobieski, who was a Polish nobleman who achieved uh, great renown for defeating the Ottomans in battle, so probably quite a good choice. Yeah, Bookie's favourite. Uh, still, George also receives uh, plaudits for his courage, uh, so he fights in the Scanian War against Sweden in 1677 and achieved some oh, really? uh, uh, fame for his, his valour. So he's a respected prince and uh, a good marriage prospect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think any of this is going to possibly be relevant to uh, <laughs> English consorts. Going, but carry on, carry on. <laughs> so, so, so what are you saying? When does this co- coincide with our story? Well, in 1682, he attracts the attentions of England as a suitable partner for the niece of King Charles II and daughter of the future James II, Princess Anne. Mm. Bully Anne, as we learned last week. So Anne is approaching 18, so she's 11 years younger than George. Mm. And currently she's third in line to the throne behind her father and elder sister, Princess Mary. Uh, George of Denmark wasn't the first choice for Anne, however. Negotiations with Hanover for her to marry the future George I had actually been uh, taken pretty seriously. What would that have meant? Well, I mean, it would have made the Hanoverian succession a bit less uh, contentious. Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't actually, that wouldn't have changed anything, would it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. How interesting. <laughs> How interesting it would have changed nothing at all. <laughs> I mean, that is sort of a bit weird, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. That you could have two such major players intersecting earlier hmm. and it not... Anyway, these negotiations come to naught, um, and in the autumn of 1682, a mini-scandal had been averted when uh, the rakish Lord Mulgrave was expelled from court for writing to the Lady Anne. Um, And we can infer that it was a dirty letter or something? Uh, He he has something of a reputation, Lord Mulgrave, when it comes to the ladies, and he was not permitted to be writing to the Lady Anne, so... uh, George, however, is a safe choice um, in terms of religion. Obviously, he's a staunch Protestant. Um, but it's unusual because uh, the father-in-law, James, is, of course, an avowed Catholic. And indeed, Louis XIV of France, also Catholic. And yet both of them are very pleased at the idea of George marrying Anne. Tell me why, because I can't work that out. Because they are both keen to check the growing influence of William of Orange, who is married to Anne's older sister, Princess Mary. William, indeed, was filled with consternation when James told him the news of the marriage. Right, just because he sort of saw himself as the lead Protestant chance and he, they were backing someone else. Well, it's not so much necessarily that they're backing somebody else, but more that um, he sees this as all the other countries ganging up on him. They'd come to each other's aid, right, in a, in a war? Well, England ally with France at this point. Louis XIV is giving Charles money. So. Oh, no way. They actually are fully teaming up. Mm. And the Danes have been at odds with the Dutch as well, so... It's not about religion at all here, is it? But for William as well, it's not just the fact that there's uh, a diplomatic alliance against him, but also George will take precedence over him at the English court, because whilst William is stadtholder uh, in the Netherlands, George is, of course, a prince, and thus of royal blood. Apparently the French ambassador even investigated whether it could be arranged that Anne and George would leapfrog Mary and William in the line of succession. Yeah, they would, wouldn't they, though? Oh, no, Anne came next. And if After you add Mary. an Anne to a George, does that beat a William and a Mary? I mean, it doesn't. Not. Well, yeah. the French thought, why don't we just say it's going to be Anne and George instead of William and Mary while we're making all these fun alliances? Uh, yeah. But Charles gave the idea of a short shrift. There'd been quite a lot of fuss about the exclusion crisis with James II and obviously the Civil War. Uh, and yeah. So Charles was quite strong on the idea of a hereditary line of succession. Yeah. Yeah. This was a particular rule that Charles did actually feel quite strongly about yeah (laughs) yeah still england very much dictate the terms of the marriage so george will reside in england right well you're saying right but usually when a princess marries she goes off to the other country that's what happens with princesses they go off and marry foreign princes Yeah. but not in this case in this case it is george who will come to england to live with anne at the english court why well, I guess because the English have decided we, he's not in line to the Danish throne. Anne potentially is, and she's an English princess, so they want her there. Mm. That, now you've pointed it out, that does feel odd. Mm. 
and also much of their income as a couple will come from his Danish estates. Mm. So James does provide them with some money, but actually they are nevertheless reliant on George paying his own way, which again you might not expect him to have to do. Yeah, since you're forcing him to stay somewhere where he has to pay. Yes. Does he? He's got to like keep his hotel bill going or whatever. Well, I mean, Look, obviously they they have somewhere to live, but obviously things things cost money. Yeah, but that is interesting. What what if what do you spend your money on? Gambling. Certainly, gambling, drinking, clothes, tapestries. Well, I just I'd like some more information around that. If anyone. <laughs> George initially receives a rapturous welcome. In England, uh, celebrated as a, a valiant Protestant prince, he was described as a very comely person, a very decent and graceful behaviour. It was said that nobody could please better and more universally in one afternoon than he hath done. Nice. A good egg. Well, indeed. And there was a sense that, you know, sort of approaching 30, he was going slightly to seed. So the French ambassador thought that he appears sensible and reserved, neither good or bad, but he is a bit fat. Mm. And similarly, Charles II gave him some very Charles-like advice. <laughs> oh, he's still here, isn't he? Walk with me, hunt with my brother, and do justice to my niece, and you will not be fat. That's nice advice, isn't it? So walk with him, mm. hunt with a brother. Do go and see what that means. Charles. Now, although George had actually visited England a couple of times before, he and Anne have never met. They've never actually been at court at the same time. Nevertheless, they marry at St James's Palace on the 28th of July, 1683. Uh, Charles, James and our last two consorts, Catherine of Braganza and Mary of Modena, are both in attendance. How They must have met before they got married, though. Oh, yes, they meet before they got married, but even though George had been to England before, they hadn't met before George comes over for the marriage. A lot of these weddings we talk about are quite a lot like married at first sight. Australia, or whatever it is. Ne- I won't be so critical of it next time they show it on Gogglebox. <laughs> I'll be thinking, crikey, that's Henry V and Catherine, Catherine of Falwell. <gasps> Sorry, oh, I interrupted you. you. Obviously, you were that's what you were about <laughs> you, to say. You, I mean, not you saved me. You interrupted me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I struck gold with Catherine, to be fair. <laughs> what would uh, I have said? Catherine of Fowl, but no. That's gonna, I would have fallen over on the second syllable. But still, two out of three words. Yeah. <laughs> uh, George and Anne mostly live in a cockpit in Whitehall, so apartments in Whitehall. Okay. Um, and from the off, they are a very happy couple. Oh, lovely. Get on incredibly well together, genuine love match, rarely spend a night apart, and even unusually share a room. Good Lord. Never did a happier pair come together. The prince and she used to spend extraordinary much time together in conversation daily. Scarce any occurrence can cause an intermission. So um, I just want to think of the two characters we've got to play here. We've got a slightly corpulent uh, Protestant war hero, once dashing fella, Mm. thinking I've got a pretty decent match. Mm. And the quite snipey bully... (laughs) <laughs> who's been through a lot with her father and uncle falling out. Have they done that yet? No, that's not happened yet. So we're still in the reign of Charles II, so oh, everything's yeah. kind of fine, really, at the moment. Okay, so she's not even bullying Mary of Modena yet? She's probably just about to start okay. sniping a bit. Maybe that's because she feels all Charlie Big Potatoes. <laughs> now she's got. Her. That he's not Charlie. He's not called Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> he's called. <laughs> um, uh, Charles, uh, and, and you know, more confident now that she's got this match, hmm. and she's mouthing off. Anyway, they are very, very happy together. Unfortunately, for most of the contemporaries, the positive impressions, positive first impressions they had of George, was quickly reversed as soon as they got to know him. Oh, good. Whilst uh, valiant on the battlefield and amiable among friends, as we said before, he was extremely shy in public and he continued throughout his time in England to speak with a very thick accent. Mm. So John Evelyn described him as a young man of few words, spoke French ill, somewhat heavy. I don't even know what that would sound like. What does a Dane sound like? Oh, hang on, where's Solskjaer from? Norway. (laughs) I've got a real problem here, (laughs) Graham. 
Well, I'm just going to imagine Eugen a Solskjaer, if that's right. <laughs> Bishop Burnett said that he knew more than he could well express, for he spoke acquired languages ill and ungracefully. Mm. It's, I mean, you've got, to have, you've got to have languages in the day, haven't you? Mm. Certainly English. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By golly. Goes <laughs> <laughs> without saying. George proves remarkably devoid of ambition, so he prefers right. to spend his time playing cards and consuming alcohol. That's where his money goes. Uh, one reason that William was so irked at having George as a brother-in-law was the fact that he'd met him and thought him something of an <laughs> adult. Oh, and, and then has to do all his bowing and, you know, that would rankle. He's got to sort of bow to this fellow and it's, he's emblematic of all the issues. Um, see, I just assumed he was a good egg. Well, it's not that he's not necessarily a good egg. He's just a bland egg. A bland egg. 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 He's an egg. <laughs> he's an egg. Okay. All right. Yeah, I see. Because people were saying before that he was, because he was battle person and... Being in a battle, he came over and he was probably quite... Because he's also really shy. I see. So he's just an egg that's been in a battle. Yeah. Okay. And closest friend Sarah Churchill said that winning large sums of money from George playing cards was but a small recompense for the penance of keeping him company. <laughs> oh dear. While Charles II, of course, provides the definitive assessment that has prevailed through the years. Oh, yeah. I've tried him drunk, I've tried him sober, but God's fish, there's nothing in him. <laughs> that is the perfect description of an egg. <laughs> that is, I, um, I um, had the nickname for a while from my friends of Grandpa Egg, because... <laughs> Um, I just like to, there was one occasion when I, I was sitting on a beach just underneath Manabir Castle, that sort of way, uh, and it was boiling hot. But I still had a little blanket over my knees reading a book. And whenever I <laughs> read a book, Eric used to I turned into an egg, just sort of alive but not responsive. <laughs> and I look, I'm a bit of a grandpa. So I'm, I'm a bit like this fella, um, George of um, Denmark. Thank you. Yeah, egg and bacon. <laughs> there you go. We've got the card. The one person, indeed, who could rival George in Anne's affection was the aforementioned Sarah Churchill, who um, is by this point wife to John Churchill, the future Earl of Marlborough, one of England's greatest ever generals. Oh yeah. Anne's letters show an almost obsessive need for Sarah that some have speculated may have been a, a romantic, perhaps even sexual relationship. If so, perhaps more likely. In the sort of teenage years, than when George comes around, because as you say, she shares a room with George, and they're together yeah. pretty much all the time. But nevertheless, very very close relationship. Sarah certainly has a hold over Anne, but happily doesn't seem to be problematic uh, for the marriage at all. Uh, and indeed, George becomes very friendly with the Churchills. John Churchill Marlborough escorted him to England from Denmark. Another Churchill brother had even been gentleman of the bedchamber to him in Copenhagen. Oh right. So Anne and George nice. and the Churchills tight. Yeah. yeah. Now, after the accession of James II in 1685, George was appointed to the Privy Council and attended uh, meetings every Sunday with the Cabinet to consider foreign affairs. But his thoughts don't seem to have had held any sway, and indeed it is essentially just an honorific appointment, and no other role or responsibility is granted to him, despite his seniority at court. Yeah, because he was dim or because he was dull? Certainly dull. Maybe people thought he was dim because he struggled with his English. Yeah. Oh, of course, there's that as well, poor bloke. Mm. However, as James pursues greater toleration for Catholics, George and Anne become figureheads for Protestants in England. Mm. And with James's consort, Mary of Modena's pregnancy in the summer of 1687, Anne and George withdraw from court, and Protestant opposition around James is known as the Cockpit Circle, because it's based around their residence in Whitehall. Okay, so they, they go... In order to cause a faction, is that right? Um, well, or they, they go and thus a faction. There's a faction brewing because there's opposition to James and there's the fear, of course, that this pregnancy will result in the birth of a baby boy, which promises a Catholic succession. And indeed, that is what happens in the summer of 1688. A baby boy is born and William of Orange, egged on by uh, <laughs> nobles, William of Orange prepares to invade. Okay, yeah. 
swim across the channel with his beak. Indeed. Uh, now, George is involved in the diplomatic whisperings that are going on at this time, and he is determined to refuse a command in James's army. And Anne writes to William, assuring him that George would support him, saying she was sure he will do you all the service that lies in his power. However, when the invasion actually comes, George is still with James and the Royal Army in Salisbury. Gosh, tri- awkward. Got another awkward. appointment. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, so he's so, there. He's sorry. He's like on his horse with James, knowing that he's going to defect. Mm. Well, as are others. So when James seems to lose his nerve and decides to withdraw to London, John Churchill, Marlborough, and other senior officers defect that night. They can just sense it, can't you? I guess. And indeed, George also defects the following night. Uh, sends word to Anne and Sarah, who escape the rather lax guard of Mary of Montenegro. Oh yes. And then George and Anne are reunited at Oxford two weeks later and then ride back to London together as James's rule collapse. And in April 1669, William and Mary are crowned joint monarchs of England. Now, initially, George is rewarded for his loyalty, so he is ennobled as the Baron of Ockingham, or Oakingham, because that's Wokingham, Earl of Kendal and Duke of Cumberland, which gives him a seat in the House of Lords. Sausages? Are you kidding me? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Amazing. We've got the full breakfast. <laughs> no, no, you've got to slip some beans in there somehow. Oh, yes, or maybe a tomato. Furthermore, an Act of Parliament naturalises George as an English subject. George acts as something of a proxy for Anne, because as a woman, she can't hold public office. Until oh, yeah. she actually becomes queen, in which case, obviously, she is public office. But until that point, she can't hold any public office. So George is the one who sits on William's Privy Council, later serves on the Council of Nine, which assists Mary with governing when William goes off to the continent at times. Okay, yeah. However, there are deep tensions at court that quickly get worse. Anne resents the fact that William has leapfrogged her in the succession. Oh, no. Because obviously William and Mary are joint monarchs, but William should be behind Anne in the order of succession, but he is now joint king. And, of course, we know William already despises George as a bit of an idiot, thinks him of little talent, and he proceeds to humiliate him. So as part of William's negotiated peace uh, between Denmark and Sweden, George is persuaded to surrender his mortgages on the Danish lands, the ones that he uses for basically his money. Uh, William pledges that he will be compensated for this, but fearing that Anne, having lots of money, would have a bit too much independence to be a threat, they basically just neglect to actually pay him back. I feel like that's Mary's influence. It's certain, yeah, there's tensions between the sisters, but yeah. George serves alongside William in Ireland following James II's invasion in 1690 as a bid to try and get his throne back. But William is utterly dismissive of George, so he excludes him from command, refuses to travel with him in his coach, or rather to allow George to travel with him in his coach. Oh God, so it's really open and obvious, his dislike. Well, indeed, and George is publicly humi- humiliated when he was barred from joining the Navy when he was in process of actually going on board a ship. Oh dear, this poor guy. And the final straw comes when William's Dutch guards neglect to salute George and walking past him, which is something that Anne assumes was done under William's orders. And so Anne and George leave court. Yeah. Yeah. They're being told in in not some in actions, aren't they? Mm. There's also a dispute over John Churchill being accused of Jacobite sympathies and Anne refuses to dismiss Sarah Churchill, which results in a breach between Anne and Mary. Um, And indeed, those are not resolved by the time that Mary dies in 1694. And relations with William publicly at least do do improve a little bit after Mary's death. Uh, In 1699, William finally recommends Parliament pay George his mortgage debts. Oh, good. Though he continues to exclude him from Regency councils when he makes his annual visits to the Netherlands. One of the best links between William, um, well, and previously William and Mary, the two courts, uh, is the son of George and Anne, William, Duke of Gloucester. He Mm -hmm. is their only surviving child out of 17 pregnancies. Oh, yeah. So he was going to be heir? Yeah, so he's the future of the dynasty, and he's doted on by William and Mary as well as obviously by... George and Anne, but tragically in 1700 he dies at the age of 11. Oh, wow. So understandably, obviously, George and Anne are utterly devastated. Uh, the retreat to Windsor are only seen by their most intimate acquaintances. But also, of course, this means the Stuart line, ignoring the Jacobite threat, is going to end with Anne. Mm. 
So in 1701, the Act of Succession is passed, which bars Catholics from the throne and ensures Anne will be followed by the next nearest royal Protestants, who are the Hanoverians. In 1702, William III dies, so uh, and George serves as chief mourner at his funeral. Mm, that would have irked him. Well, apparently George had tried to visit him on his deathbed, but William didn't want him. <laughs> didn't want him there. <laughs> well, they do push, um, uh, like eggs that aren't your own out of the nest don't they You've, i've seen that with their beaks they roll them out <laughs> anyway with william dead and thus becomes queen of england but what of george yeah because he's only the third husband to a queen regnant that we've had in england and both of his predecessors have been made king so philip the second was king albeit technically without executive power but of course william oh, became yeah. william the third he became joint monarch Mm. So would George be similarly entitled? So the only time we've had men, and they've been monarchs. Sort of monarch, actual monarch. Exactly. They have certainly been king, at the very least, in name at least, if yeah. not reality. And there was some support for a joint monarchy. There was an anonymous leaflet circulating just before Anne's coronation, stating that it was unnatural to see a husband subject to his wife. But of course this very much goes against the act of succession that they've passed just the previous year, and doesn't seem to have had any widespread support. So there is no new title for George. He remains plain, old, humble Prince George. Because he's Prince of Denmark. Because he's Prince of Denmark. But he will not be king. So they go for the easiest option of all, which is do nothing at all. <laughs> yes. And quite frankly, he seems to have been quite happy being in the background playing the supporting role. So he lives yeah. in the consort's apartments in the royal palaces uh, and secures him a potential dowager payment of £100,000 a year should she predecease him. Nice. Which is more than double any previous payment for a queen dowager. Well, so I mean, already you've got the gender pay gap going on there. <laughs> yeah. However, Anne does want more titles to reflect George's status. She lobbied the Dutch unsuccessfully to appoint him Captain General of Allied Forces. Mm -hmm. So instead she appoints him Generalissimo of England's Armed Forces, which is an impressive but utterly empty title. Yeah, why is this important? Well, she just wants, because he's not king, she just sort of wants to give, you know, give him something. Well, there's only so many tapestries you can buy, isn't there? <laughs> he was appointed Lord High Admiral, however, so he does regularly attend meetings and takes a genuine interest in the subject, though the bulk of the work is done by George Churchill, one of the... Yeah, but he uh, wasn't allowed on a ship brothers. when he tried. Well, yeah, to William, yeah. <laughs> I, I have almost <laughs> experience in this field, in fact. I have actually been on a gangplank, which <laughs> is neither on the sea nor the land. <laughs> the world's first pilot. George continues to sit in Cabinet in the House of Lords and helps to promote Anne's political agenda. Uh, he votes in favour of the first occasional conformity bill, despite it going against his own beliefs, backs Anne's choice as Speaker of the House and helps steer a course of moderation when Anne comes under attack from weaker politicians. Hmm. Nice. However, George's influence on national affairs are limited by his increasingly poor health. So he'd been seriously affected by smallpox in 1687, falling ill along with uh, two infant daughters. Uh, George recovered, but tragically the girls did not. Oh, right. So Lady Rachel Russell recorded, They had taken it very heavily. Sometimes they wept, sometimes they mourned in words, then sat silent hand in hand. He sick in bed, and she the carefullest nurse to him that can be imagined. Oh, it's just tragic, isn't it? So George does survive, of course, but his health is permanently impaired by this, so he suffers from severe asthma and congested lungs, which is obviously worsened by his heavy drinking. Mm. Uh, so Anne and George come to the throne, as one historian put it, corpulent and prematurely middle-aged together. And just sort of harassed and bullied and not, and then told off when they try and do something. Mm. Uh, and he's presumably quite attacked by his bullying wife well no they seem to have got on very well together they were perfectly happy just trying to get him nice titles he, and things um, to do oh yeah she just was a bully to others <laughs> yeah he has uh, bouts of severe ill health as consort so an asthma attack in 1702 saw him, uh, saw him take the waters at Bath 
uh, for quite a while, but in vain hope of a recovery. In 1706, he had blood in his sputum and was too ill to attend Thanksgiving services for the uh, for the Union with Scotland Act, which is the first oh, yeah. part of the Act of Union that creates the United Kingdom. Huh. Um, and also, Gosh, he could have been then the first king of Britain, Great Britain, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also service for Marlborough's victory in the Battle of Ramillies. Uh, then in October 1708, his asthma flares up again, um, plus a spot of dropsy, for good measure. Uh, and this time he is not to recover. So he dies at Kensington Palace on the 28th of October 1708 at the age of 55. Anne was devastated by his death, one observer recorded. His death has flung the Queen into an unspeakable grief. She never left him till he was dead, but continued kissing him the very moment his breath went out of his body, and twas with a great deal of difficulty my Lady Marlborough prevailed upon her to leave him. Hmm, that's horrid. I mean, it's a classic scene, but still horrid. Now, my Lady Marlborough here is called Sarah Churchill, whose uh, distinct lack of sympathy and even mockery of Anne at this time was the last straw in their once close friendship. No. So Anne's new closest attendant, Sarah's bete noir, was Abigail Masham, who noted that Anne was in a very deplorable condition, for now her courage is all gone, and it was some time before Anne could even bear to appoint a replacement as Lord High Admiral. So initially she carried out the duties herself and burst into tears when she first had to sign the signature in George's stead. Hmm. Anne wrote to George's nephew, Frederick IV of Denmark, that the loss of such a husband who loved me so dearly and so devotedly is too crushing for me to be able to bear it as I ought. Mm. So, that was the life and consulship of Prince George of Denmark. We'll review him after a quick break. George showed a lot of early promise in military affairs, having served alongside his brother in the Scanian War against Sweden in 1677. Mm. Uh, he controlled part of the army at the Battle of Langskrona and received great acclaim when, in response to seeing his brother captured by the Swedes, he cut his way through enemy troops at great risk to himself and successfully rescued his brother. Oh, nice. Good work. Unfortunately for the Danes, the battle was a convincing win for the Sweden, but still, impressive no, by George. still, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He has a, a, you know, an important part to play in the events of the Glorious Revolution of 1688. Ahead of the invasion he was in close contact with the Dutch envoy advising how James's army was disaffected, saying he would refuse a command under him. George also rejects the suggestion that he and Anne could be evacuated for their safety. Nice. His public defection as one of the most senior royals at court was a significant blow to James's support base. James tried to be dismissive uh, about that in his memoirs. So apparently before uh, his defection, George had repeatedly greeted news of other defections by exclaiming, Et il possible? Is it possible? Uh, so when James was told that George had gone, he responded, So, et il possible is gone too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. You know you're in trouble when you're getting burned by James II. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. May have been a certain amount of hindsight in that witticism, because the Danish ambassador who broke the news uh, wrote at the time, Your Majesty cannot imagine the King of England's consternation at this news. I.e. Yeah, James was actually bothered about it. Maybe more for the politics than actually anything that George brought to the table. But yeah. He's unlikely to have perhaps have quipped like that if he was raging. George published a letter to James uh, justifying his actions after the defection, expressing concern at the restless spirits of the enemies of the reformed religion, backed by the cruel zeal and the prevailing power of France. And this isn't just empty rhetoric on George's part. With Anne, George had been prominent as a focus for disaffected Protestants at court, and James would have liked them to have converted to Catholicism. Probably did try a bit, but a Jesuit priest favoured by James noted religion was one area where George was not easygoing. Luther was never more earnest than in this prince. He has naturally an aversion to our society, like the Jesuits, and this antipathy does much to obstruct the progress of our affair. Mm. So he's seen as a staunch defender of the faith. If I can do one thing, (laughs) just be Protestant. Yeah. But, you know, agency, independence of actions is something where George is... Is pretty mm. resolute. He wasn't welcomed by William, of course, but he does nevertheless show that he's willing to get stuck in to support him. Mm. So he does go with William to Ireland at his own expense. Of course. And George indeed dismissed his mo- own master of horse and lord of the stall when they refused to accompany him. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I see. 
he was next to William when he received a minor injury early in the campaign, and he participated in the great victory at the Battle of the Boyne. Oh, right. Huh. To what Despite, extent, though? Like, uh, was he well, commanding? I, I don't, I don't, he's not commanding. I don't really know what he does, perhaps largely because, obviously, William is so determined not to have anything to do with George, so he's probably not, doesn't really get much of a write-up. But, you know, he's there. I think that's it. He's just a complete extra. He is just there, and he's there because he's sort of got to be. But don't don't give him any army, yeah. and then he gets he, sort of people finding him annoying because he's just hanging around. Mm. So there's very much the sort of brother-in-law vibes with William, which obviously they are. But that sort of scenario where they obviously don't have any connection. George doesn't know any of William's mates, but he's got to take yeah, him on yeah. the stag too. Is that kind yes. of vibe? Yes. Yeah. And actually, did you did you get on? No, I still don't like him. It's going to make Christmas so awkward. <laughs> Indeed, he was given no thanks by William, but uh, nevertheless, he thinks, well, I'm going to be useful somehow, so he decides to sign up for the Navy. Yeah. Only, of course, to find himself being prevented from boarding at the last minute. But, you know, George, George is he's willing. He's giving it a go. Did he have, like, a job in hand? I'm not really sure what he was actually going to do. I suspect probably just what he had otherwise been doing, which was probably just sort of being there, <laughs> standing there a bit behind the captain. <laughs> I say, yeah. But I reckon on a boat, a ship rather, you'd have everyone would have something to. He'd be able to find himself a job. Whereas on a battlefield, you can just sort of trot about eating <laughs> a bit of chicken. That's certainly my tactic, anyway. <laughs> it's certainly my tactic. But yeah, yeah, just sort of be present, turn up, meet in the room, have a sandwich. I sort of used to do that when playing cricket at school. Always opt to field and then just go and lie in the long grass and no one missed you. Good for you <laughs> just hope that the artillery doesn't come and land nearby. Yeah. Now, we're saying here he deserves a bit of credit for showing willing, but, but it also has to be accepted his abilities are clearly not rated by contemporaries. Yeah. Very much under sufferance that William has him in Ireland at all and George is given no responsibilities at all, which, considering his rank, uh, is pretty damning, nor even a pretense that his opinion was in any way valued. Uh, Burnett stated William treated him with contempt, while Sarah Churchill recorded that the king never took more notice of him than if he had been a page of the back stairs. Yeah. Really cruel. Now, as I said, George is there at least, but obviously his attempts at joining the Navy do end in public humiliation rather than a grand military... Uh, so William had, perhaps to avoid a confrontation in public, seemed to intimate George had his permission to do so when George asked if he could join the Navy. So George asked and they William sort of embraces him and then heads off. Mm. But didn't actually give an answer. So George thinks that's a yes, heads off to the ship, loads his bags onto the St Andrew, commanded by Lord Barclay. Whereas in private, William sent instructions to Mary that she should neither suffer the prince to go to sea nor yet forbid him to go if she could so contrive matters as to make his staying at home his own choice. So Mary appealed to Sarah Churchill to try to persuade Anne to ask George to stay at home to avoid having to order him, but obviously Sarah Churchill just goes straight to Anne, blabs everything. Mm, yeah. Riles Anne up and that obviously leads to the sisters falling out. So ultimately, because George is still going to go, Mary has to send the Earl of Nottingham down to the harbour to publicly order George not to board the ship. Oh, my God. And George was displeased that he would have to send for his things back without giving any reason for changing his design, which would be making a very ridiculous figure. Yeah. Because, indeed, his bags have already been loaded onto the ship. So they have to disembark his bags. One might have expected this situation to improve once Anne was queen, but even here George wasn't able to really get anywhere. Anne, of course, had written to the Dutch asking him to be made Captain General of Allied Forces, sent Marlborough to persuade them in person, but they had no interest in accepting this and decided the most diplomatic option was just not to reply to the letter. Yeah, that's common tactic here, isn't it? The one appointment George did get was that of Lord High Admiral. Um, and to be fair, he does see the Admiralty Secretary most days. He took a keen interest in ship design and naval management, so he sent letters on various issues such as the shape of topsails, quality of canvas and the strain caused by heavy guns. But it's not to any purpose, is it? The person that's giving him those updates must feel so, like, oh, what is the point in this? I'm travelling all the way from Deptford or whatever to <laughs> go and give this fellow a briefing. And it's a period in which the Navy also suffers various difficulties. Sailors die of food poisoning due to poor supplies. Inadequate escorts leave merchant ships prey to French attacks. And the Scilly Isles disaster 
uh, where four ships sank due to inadequate navigation equipment saw the loss of around 2,000 sailors. Mm. So Burnett concluded, At sea, things were ill-designed and worse executed. The making Prince George, our Lord High Admiral, proved in many instances very unhappy to the nation. Men of bad designs imposed on him. He understood those matters very little, and they sheltered themselves under his name, to which a great submission was paid, but the complaints rose the higher for that. So they, he's a scapegoat here, or was it really his responsibility? It's more George Churchill that actually does the work, but still there's a sense that George is its under his watch. Yeah. And, you know, we're usually looking for the consorts here for agency, independence of action, and George is really defined by his utter lack of ambition. He's quite happy to be at home, quiet, with a bottle, building model ships. And of which that is, I totally respect him for that. It's nothing he can do. They don't have planes at this point. That's entirely what I would have been doing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly, speaking of which. Um, <laughs> so indeed, when he first comes to England, he was shocked at how frantic court life was. Hmm. We talk here of going to tea, of going to Winchester, and everything else except sitting still all summer, which was the height of my ambition. Hmm. God send me a quiet life somewhere, for I shall not be long able to bear this perpetual motion. Oh. He does. He, he wants a nunnery, doesn't he? He's absolutely <laughs> suited for the perfect consort role, and he's not allowed to take it. Uh, Burnett criticised George for failing to take a lead, or at least offering to do so, when James faced rebellion from the Duke of Monmouth early in his reign, concluding that his staying at home in such a time of danger brought him under much neglect. Mm. And Charles Beam argued that if George had even a fraction of the ambition of William of Orange during the constitutional discussions after the uh, revolution, he likely could have secured a formal recognition of basically being a joint monarch or having some kind of role. Uh, but he has no role in the discussions, utterly ignored in the settlements, and becomes the first consort to a queen not to be a king. So as Beam continues, George of Denmark simply joined the peers in his proper place of precedence as a devoted and obedient subject. Yeah, I mean, it's what he wanted. It's what he wanted, but it's not very battley. No, no. He's not going to get any big scores here. Mm. Two. He's just stymied at every turn. I'm not saying it's his fault, but he tries because he's told he has to try, but the lack of um, success in that regard sort of chimes with his lack of ambition. So he's like, well, fine, I am actually, you know, still Prince Consort, everything's... Sort of all right. Yeah, two's probably a a fair score. Mm. So a four. Scandal. One thing I thought we could consider for scandal is the fact that George betrays James II and defects to William during the Glorious Revolution. Yeah. He was also there with James. Yeah, that was a bit really struck me. So he wasn't just staying at home and then makes a run for it from his palace. He is actually riding alongside him with the army and effects. And indeed, defecting proved comically difficult for George because apparently he was just about to mount his horse to make his escape when James appeared and invited him to share his coach on the way back to London. No. So obviously he has to say yes. God, what did they talk about? That is so awkward. Well, they're talking about all of the defections, which George obviously knows all about because he'd been chatting with the officers beforehand and was about to join yeah. them. So when they're all being listed, that's when George is sort of shaking his head and going, Oh, et il possible. Oh, so he's trying to speak in French. Badly, obviously. Yeah. Oh. He then has supper with James at Andover, and he's obviously now just desperately trying to find a chance I'm d yeah. to leave I'm the tired. party. Really tired. Must go to bed. So George made it his business to condemn those that were gone, and how little such people were to be trusted, and sure the prince could put no confidence in such. James said that George should go to bed to get some rest, but George insisted on waiting on James until he went to bed. Clever. Which was very late, as it turned out. Um, and his devotion was such that it actually touched James, who said that he should not forget the respects he paid him. After which James oh. goes into his tent and George pretty much runs straight off for his horse and skedaddles. Yeah. But I mean, I think that's uh, that's actually a pretty good battliness bit. It's got a bit of like spyiness. He's got to think of it. There's a, there's a trope here, isn't there? Of that moment when you're something like 
you're in the safe twiddling the knob and the <laughs> camera cuts to the person walking down the corridor mm-hmm. you're like oh god are we going to do it in time and then you turn around and you just got to act totally normal George is defending his battle in his record here he's going look I, I was trying very hard and very sneakily to run away <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I ended up having yeah. to join him running away in the wrong direction <laughs> but then eventually I was able to trick him so that I could run away in the other direction yes well well, well done George <laughs> Got to sell it as a victory, I suppose. And that's all I can really think of for scandal. He's really notable for his lack of scandal, particularly when it comes to marital fidelity, which is, uh, as one chronicler noted at the time, a virtue not often to be found in courts in these degenerate and licentious ages. Mm. So he is, he is a completely faithful steward. In the Restoration ah. Court and all of that, no oh, naughty business. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. What is he playing at? I think it's got to be a zero for One. Scandal for me. Oh, really? Yeah. I'd, I'd, it's Because, I mean, it feels a bit personal. The defection, I think the reason I put it in there was because it does feel a bit personal, the fact that he's there and the fact that he has to really get a bit two-faced about it. Yeah. But I don't know if it's so scandalous. I think you'd, you'd, think you'd feel a bit guilty about it, but I'm not sure if it's... Even when other people the next day are discussing the defections, his one won't come up. No. Yeah, okay, zero. Subjectivity. Well, as we said, one area where George stood firm was religion. He refuses to convert from Lutheranism to Anglicanism. Mm. So he does remain a Lutheran and has his own private chapel. He's forced to worship in an Anglican church once a year to maintain his role in public office, mm. which he does. But George believes in, uh, in pietism, which means that he very much values his personal faith and commitment above everything else. Oh. So not even Protestantism, it's like he's um, harder core still. He said himself, for my part, I really believe that faith there begins where the ceremony endeth. So I, yeah, I'll go along to the church and I'll say the words and do the thing, but it's it's what's in the heart that actually matters. It's also convenient because it means that his non-conformity isn't problematic for Anne Mm. as as ruler. Unfortunately... His uh, sort of private dedication to faith means that his good deeds probably go largely unrecorded. Mm. So his chaplain claimed that in acts of charity he loved to move most silently and that the extent of his benefaction will be forever hid. Yeah. Silly, really. Doesn't he know what he's doing here? That's not going to help his score. So you have to imagine that he might be doing nice things secretly. can't score him on that. Oh dear, George. This is a problem for George, that his impulse regarding modesty means that he's probably been underappreciated by historians as well as contemporaries because he doesn't really have any interest in blowing his own trumpet. No. He's just begging, isn't he? mm, So obviously the language barrier leads many at the time to underestimate him, but actually foreign ambassadors suggest George has much more about him. So in 1686, the French ambassador stated that while he appeared ponderous, he has very good sense... While a German envoy ahead of 1702 said that George had been very lucid discussing state affairs, about which he appeared to me to be very knowledgeable, he gave me to understand he was very particularly informed of all that happened. Well, poor bloke, it's just because he's doing it all in second language and he doesn't have a skill Mm. for it. Yeah. Historians of Scottish politics have suggested that he was an understated but demonstrable player in the making of the Union. And he is active in politics in Anne's reign. He attends and votes in the House of Lords regularly, helps to represent Anne's opinions as well as influencing votes in the House of Commons through some of his connections. Mm. He also helps to moderate Anne's sort of anti-Whig sentiments, alters his own council to include some Whig voices and supported Whig appointments in the following Parliament. Now, we criticise George for his lack of agency and assertiveness in battliness, including his ready acceptance of not being king. But Julie mm. Ferguson thinks historians are wrong to present him as failing to become king. Because George was a supportive consort, part of a partnership that works very closely and effectively together. Everything that we would really hope and expect from a female consort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And indeed, much of his influence with Anne probably comes from a similar sort of hidden, informal, private settings. Because obviously he is, well, he's sharing a room with her every night. Mm. If he were um, a female, it would be very, very different, wouldn't it, the the way we're judging him? But maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe we should be treating him as yeah. a consort. Yeah, you're right, quite right. His first chaplain, John Trebeco, said that he was Anne's consort and bosom friend in whom her greatest concerns and secrets were secure, 
while the Earl of Westmoreland was effusive with praise. I am not capable to set forth the just praise due to that good man. He kept whisperers off the Queen and helped her judgment to stand. Yeah, well, and it was a, a very, very snipey place to be, so I imagine she really needed that. And his predecessors hadn't been so accommodating. Philip II largely abandoned Mary I when she failed to have him crowned, and William III obviously refused to accept a subordinate position to his wife at all, so it had to be joint monarch. Yeah. George is loyal, devoted, supportive, ran, set to template how a male consort could or indeed should function. So is he himself... When's our pro- next one? Sorry. Albert. Uh, Albert. This is the template for Albert, isn't it? Prince Albert, of course. Yeah, Prince Albert. So as George himself reflected, I am a Her Majesty's subject, I shall do naught but what she commands me. Yeah. So Charles Bean concluded it was in the performance of this one public role, that of an informal consort to his wife, that Prince George of Denmark excelled. While Anne Somerset argued his contemporary lack of reputation actually serves him well. The fact that Prince George was widely regarded as a non-entity helped reconcile people to his anomalous status. And so, almost by accident, George achieved a major advance for feminism. Yeah, but he didn't do that on purpose. If it was pre-planned... Feels like a, a very 90s or early 2000s stoner comedy <laughs> where he just sort of lands on his feet a bit mm. and as a result has a great leap forward for feminism, but actually it's just sort of riding his luck a bit there. Uh, but yes, the alternative, of course, that he actually is just a non-entity and yeah. Yeah. it happens to be apt for the time. So even after the funeral, Trebeco, doing the sermon, struggled to find much to say about his role in public affairs and also found his private activities were quite obscure. Burnett stated that he meddled little in business. Lord Mulgrave, mocking George's asthma, said that George was forced to breathe hard in case people mistook him for dead. And this is a reputation that lasts through the ages, so Jonathan Swift reported that the prince, being somewhat infirm and inactive, neither affected the grandeur of a crown nor the toils of business, while Queen Victoria stated that she hoped Albert would never fill the subordinate part played by the very stupid and insignificant husband of Queen Anne. Oh, up. <laughs> Everyone's thinking it. Was he very proactively supportive to Anne, or again, is that just a way of spinning the fact that he was just a bit weak? I mean, does it matter if it's a little from column A, a little from column B? <laughs> So in 1702, he reluctantly voted in favour of the first Occasional Conformity Bill, which was designed to stop dissenters, uh, i.e. non-Church of England people, taking communion once a year in an Anglican church so they could pass the oath for office, Uh, something which George himself, of course, did. Mm. So he told the Whigs in the voting lobby, my heart is with you. Mm. But has to roll over, given the order. Hmm. Well, he's, he sticks firm where he... he Where he can. Can. And he tries in other places, but it's just refused. And he's like, all right, well, I'll just go home and <laughs> watch Bill and Ted. <laughs> but yeah, but I, I do actually think, I sort of feel a bit more, a bit more sympathetic to him here in Subjectivity. You know, I do think that the being a supportive male consort is an important thing to do. The fact that, yeah. yes, it, it helps that he happens to be in an age where you can get away with that, but, you know, that's a lot of people that... I'm I'm saying greatness, I don't mean that in his case, obviously, but, you know, a lot of the great achievers in history, they are helped by the fact that circumstances happen to enable their natural abilities to come forth, and in George's case, his natural ability is to sort of sit quietly at home and not get in anyone's way. I mean, Graham, don't get me wrong. I like the guy. It's a part I was born to play. <laughs> <laughs> but I just don't think he's going to light anything on fire. For Anne, as a, as a consort, would you have wanted him as a consort? I mean, obviously, you know, that's just one person. Yeah. But still, he, he does, it's a decent job, actually. It's, it's not a bad effort, as subjectivity goes. As subjectivity goes, I think he has to score really well because of all the chaos that we've had in the past 150 years. He's, he's not given enough credit for just being that stable ship, because yes. it could have gone south. It's not that he was a male consort that's the problem, it's that she's a queen. It would have taken anyone else quite a lot to swallow that, but actually just meant that he could carry on having a little 
he's on his peace pipe. And, you know, we've still got, obviously, we've got the Jacobites are still around. They're circling when Anne will die without an heir. Not everyone is thrilled about the Hanoverians, but they're here as well. So, you know, if George had really been pushing and being like, oh, I should be king, I should be mm. have my own claim, you know, that, that could have caused issues yeah. when it comes to yeah. the succession. So in this instance, it's good subjectivity because he's good at being a consort. But not a particularly engaging consort. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of the Stuart, you know, we're at the end of the Stuart consorts now. A lot of them have been a bit disruptive. You know, Anne of Denmark, there were concerns about Catholicism. Henrietta Maria was very uh, very Catholic, and that caused an awful lot of problems with the Civil War. Catherine of Braganza, Catholic, mayor of modern Catholicism, obviously leads to James's rule ending. There is no consort William and Mary, they're joint monarch. So, weirdly, Mm. George is the only avowedly, definitely Protestant and not causing any issues consort. And yet he's treated as if he's constantly getting in the way. Yeah. I thought I had something to say then. I can't remember what it was. (laughs) Classic George. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's just being an egg, isn't he? Yeah. He's just being an egg. What does he get for being an egg? Well, I mean, rather good, actually. The people that find him annoying aren't the ones that we're thinking about here for subjectivity. Um, So I think five... I was going to give him the benefit of the doubt and give him positive. And I was going to go, oh, six, six feels a bit high. He set a baseline. Let's give him 10 overall. Yeah. Yeah. Middling. I think middling does seem apt, doesn't mm. it? Imagine if he was given that. Right, in this, in this category, George, we can start you with a totally fine middle score. Or <laughs> well, you can... No, I'll take that one. <laughs> That's what he'd do. So that is a 10 for subjectivity. Longevity. George was Prince Consort from the 8th of March 1702 to the 28th of October 1708. A reign of six years and seven months, 6.58 years, which is a score of six. 40th best overall. Not good. Dynasty. Not the programme. As we said, George and Anne go through 17 pregnancies together. Jeepers. Really horrible experience for them, obviously. Twelve of those end in uh, miscarriage or stillbirth. Two with, died within a couple of hours. Uh, there were two girls, the ones with smallpox, who die in infancy, who were otherwise healthy. And then, obviously, the only child that survived these early years is the uh, the son, William, who died at the age of 11. So a really awful uh, time for George and Anne, and also, of course, meant the end of the Stuart dynasty. Yeah. And of course, for George, unfortunately, that means a zero as a oh, dynasty yeah. score. So overall, that gives George a total score of 20. So that places him in 42nd position overall, just uh, just ahead of Elfgiever of Shaftesbury and just below Adeliza of Louvain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's probably right, isn't it? But it's not all about the score. Does he have that certain something, the lasting legacy, the great achievement and star quality that we call... Rex Factor! We could try. Well, if we are going to make a case for him, then we would say he has a lasting legacy in being a submissive male consort. Yeah. I mean, he does actually do... Yeah, that is a lasting legacy, isn't it? He's the first one we've got. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of a new thing. He's a trailblazer. Do you know what I feel like it's like on reflection? French exchange student. Mm. Foreign exchange student. Yeah. Now, fortunately, I really got on with uh, the chap that I met 30 years ago. In fact, I texted him this morning. Going to mm. go and see him in France next week. week oh, next. You do run that risk, don't you, that you could get a total um, egg. <laughs> and when, you do, when you've got that uh, language barrier as well, it's really tough. And I feel like he's... He's having a really miserable time on his French exchange. And he's shy anyway. Mm. William's taking him to school. I'm really going to stretch this metaphor as far as I can. <laughs> and, but not really spends the time to get to know him because it's hard and they don't need to. And mm. life's going on. So, although he paved the way for other French exchange students, mm. he wasn't as good as uh, Gilliam who came later. So, does that help? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, essentially what we were saying here is he doesn't really achieve anything of notes or make for a particularly fascinating study as an individual. Mm. He does not scream star quality. No. 
Oh, well. Good try. But I think that must be a no. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, never mind. Made a total hash brown of it. Correspondence Corner. So that was Prince George of Denmark. Let us know what you thought about him. Find us on Twitter, X, and Instagram at RexFactorPod. Email RexFactorPodcast.hotmail.com and remember to send in a hashtag consult card for an episode image of George. As an egg, obviously. As an egg, yeah. If you'd like to support the podcast, be sure to subscribe <laughs> or whatever podcast provider you use and donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get access to over 200 bonus episodes at patreon.com forward slash RexFactor. And you get to join our Discord server where 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 we live. Where the community is I've got to get better at this. What's the what's the lingo? Resides? It's not really very snappy digital age, is it resides? And we have some new privy councillors to welcome to the fold. Sharon Ferkins, Denise B. Jenkins, Dunstan, Greg Van Eekout, Joshua Taylor, Brandon Cruz, Leah Hall, SOL Invictor Sam. Laurie Ryan, Ronya Wagner, Catherine Sachinsky, Kathy Williams, Michael Fry, Jean White, Mad Badger, Roger Arguello, Benjamin Broman, Jennifer Garcia Green, Cody Reynolds, Ashley Fish, Stan Gotts, Kirsty Snare, Alison M, Brenda Hofstarter, and Kate Wilcox. Arise, take your place, fancy hat, feathers. The works, garters, not like that. And you'll, you'll be fine. That's it for today, and that is it for the Stuart Consorts. We have finished the miniseries. Boom. Next, next time, we will be doing a write-to-reply episode. So if you've got any comments, questions, or observations from any of our uh, episodes on the Stuart Consorts, and also Philip II of Spain, which is where we kicked things off, uh, then do send them in, and uh, in a couple of weeks, we will be releasing uh, that episode, reading out your messages and responding to them. So we'll see you next time. True bye.